some well-earned shore leave for the crew of the Enterprise on a beautiful, uninhabited planet. Probably is harmless. But before I bring my people down here, I want proof it's harmless. Hello, I'm Andrew. Hello, I'm Lisa. Welcome to episode 28 of Round the Archives. Yes, indeed. Now, where you've uh, changed formats a bit for we this have. next couple of we episodes, have. yes. haven't we? Because mm-hmm. we're going to look at uh, American series, yes, which means we've gone from six two five lines to five two five lines. Yes, but uh, the way we're going to do it is do it as a sort of two part episode, isn't yes. it? So you these get, these will be a bit shorter. Yes, but you get sort of two for the price of one. Yeah, because we're going to yeah. do hopefully the mm-hmm. the plan is we're going to do two uh, episodes in the time it would normally take us to do just over one. So yes, we'll yes. see how that pans out. We will, but never mind. Yes. Um, Quick correction from last time. Uh, we did say briefly on the treasure hunt bit about eh, Tynum, didn't yes, we? Yes, we did, yes. And I think we said it was evacuated in 1939. It wasn't. It was mm-hmm. evacuated in November 1943. Okay. So I've got a right. nice uh, booklet about Tynum there, mm-hmm. you see. But to kick us off, Martin Holmes mm-hmm. um, is going to look at... Murder, She Wrote. <laughs> Podcast 14, Murder, She Wrote. My beloved really likes a good old cosy murder mystery series. You know the sort of thing, where the horrific reality of one person killing another matters less than solving of the preposterous puzzle which led to this most brutal of inhuman acts. If it's it's all dressed up in jazz age paraphernalia, so much the better. There's nothing tastier on a chilly wintertime Saturday afternoon than a Poirot or a Sherlock Holmes. And whilst we do draw the line at the preposterous antics of the ITV version of Marple playing fast and loose with the source material, the version featuring Joan Hickson is TV gold for us. Strangely enough, perhaps for different nostalgic reasons, the Margaret Rutherford movies are still much enjoyed, all of which include the word murder in the title, and which include the perhaps significant in this context, Murder, She Said. But several other Miss Marples have been found unsuitable, including the feature film version featuring Angela Lansbury. Which brings us to Murder, She Wrote, in which she played the title character, crime novelist and amateur sleuth Jessica Fletcher, which recently looped around through its 264 episodes plus four television movies to return back to the pilot which consequently turned up in the evening on a channel i can actually receive and we decided was worth a watch out of interest murder she wrote was the brainchild of peter s fisher and two familiar names in creating tv detective drama richard levinson and william link whose credit can be seen at the start of all those columbos that are still being forever rerun 
Columbo very swiftly ran out of innovative new ways of killing to be investigated. Something that has never troubled the troubled people of Midsommar. <laughs> which is something that makes the astonishing number of murder-she-wrote stories even more remarkable. The idea of a crime writer becoming embroiled in any number of real-life crimes was hardly a new one. For just one example, it was a furrow thoroughly ploughed by Jason King way back in the late 60s, both whilst and after he worked for Department S, and it is an area of detective crime drama that was resurrected for eight seasons of Castle in the last decade. But... When you've got a willing lead actress, as amiable and likeable as Angela Lansbury on board, mixed in with a bit of cosy murder mystery that's suitable for prime time, and a stellar crowd of guest stars just lining up to join in with the fun, you know it was always bound to be a smash hit. After we'd recorded the pilot, during that first week alone, we saw Martin Landau in one episode, and Peter Graves reuniting with Greg Morris in another. In another. And before the month was out, we saw a whole host of familiar faces from both the small and big screens turning up to murder, be murdered, or just join in with the list of suspects to snarl at the camera as the significant musical stings made us aware of their suspicious actions. Murder, she wrote, to be honest, is very similar to much of the other television of this type in many ways. It portrays a strangely wholesome, idealised version of predominantly affluent white America. Well, idealised apart from all the prolific murdering, of course. It's a world of wealth and ambition where the heinous act of killing another human being is seen as the obvious solution to a business problem or a relationship problem, but in which holidays, community parties and the baking of pies can continue on regardless, and in which anyone showing a real response to genuine tragedy is swiftly led off into another room to weep alone or to plan their subsequent relationship or turn out to have been the murderer all along. Despite the many deaths, the great American machine must go ever onwards and upwards without pausing to e even to ponder on the what-might-have-beens or the tragedy of lost hopes and dreams. And often these shows end on a joke and a smile and a carry-on regardless. But that shouldn't bother us here. That is the format, and it has proved to be a very successful one for decades now, and my perhaps slightly cynical response might explain why I'm seldom drawn into talking about American series television in the articles I write. Still, for a change, I just thought, um, then I might for once. And here we are, about to look at the feature-length pilot of Murder, She Wrote, made in 1984, and called, rather excitingly and perhaps appropriately, The Murder of Sherlock Holmes. And these days broadcast as a two-part episode, as that makes it easier to schedule. Directed by Corey Allen and written in various credit formats by the three gentlemen named earlier, the story's chock full of really famous actors, not least one Andy Garcia rather barkingly playing first white tough, which makes for both an interesting casting choice and says a lot about the racism that still persists in pigeonholing so many facets of American culture. But I digress. Too much of my time recently has been spent focusing upon the portrayal of ethnic minorities by white actors in the 60s and 70s British television, so we shouldn't begrudge Mr Garcia one of his early breaks into national television. Alongside that future movie star, you also get to see Ned Beatty, who later did a fabulous turn on TV's Homicide Life on the Street, Brian Keith, a stalwart of ITC's The Zoo Gang a decade earlier, a late-life credit for the brilliant Arthur Hill, and Big John himself, Herb Edelman, in a tiny, tiny role as a bus driver, amongst many, many others. The programme itself begins with that familiar montage using HA! A typewriter! Was it so very long ago? And various jolly scenes of Jessica Fletcher living a jolly and active life around and about the location streets of the small seaside town of Cabot Cove, which, for the moment at least, resides in Maine, but which resembles in more than a few ways the community of Mendocino in Northern California, a place I have visited a couple of times and somewhere which is very proud of its association with its fictional counterpart. The scene, the titles and the jaunty tune both take a darker turn, as Jessica is seen in various of the scenes of false jeopardy, into which she will stumble during several stories, but return to a to more satisfying jollity as the pages of her latest crime novel are leather-bound into the folder bearing the series name. Part of the fun of the first series is spotting the title sequence clips, and another fun way to enjoy the show is by adding lyrics such as she's waving from the shore to the tune and images on offer. Well, we enjoy it anyway. Another fun aside is pointing out how almost all the TV lettering you will see on American TV series from this period is yellow, presumably because it was less likely to burn out the tubes or flare like white might. Almost the only series I can think of from that era which, that has white lettering is Hill Street Blues, but I'll admit that my research into this has been less than comprehensive. The first image of the show proper that we see is, perhaps significantly if you know your crime fiction history, a woman in white. 
She is carrying a candle in a glass lantern and is descending a creaking flight of stairs and, as the wind howls, we follow her to some open French windows on a stormy night as she tentatively repeats the name Roger. And, because the show has murder in the title, our expectations are already telling us that something unpleasant has happened to this Roger as she comes face to face with a masked executioner and screams! But, they're messing with you. Because it's just a stage play, albeit a stage play featuring some rather impressive scenery and effects. And Jessica is in the stalls with her other ladies of a certain age pals watching the show. Afterwards, whilst they are being bundled outside by the Harris director, she's able to tell him it's obvious that the killer is the uncle because he was wearing a different tie. This one short exchange rather cleverly tells us just about everything we ever need to know about Jessica, her ability to instantly analyse situations, her observational skills and her all-round cleverness. And we are still lamenting the woes of the play's writer, who is about to get a whole world of grief from that angry director, when the montage begins, over which that astonishing list of guest stars will appear during which Jessica once more is waving from the shore and jogs her happy way around Cabot Cove, we see a sign, meeting and greeting everyone in this obviously small but friendly-seeming town of murderers and psychopaths. But we're getting ahead of ourselves there, aren't we? The benefit of hindsight is a wonderful thing, but if we ignore the cliché that everyone Jessica ever met over the subsequent dozen years or more was somehow involved in a murder, where the only common factor was Jessica Fletcher herself, here we find ourselves right at the beginning where all of those hundreds of deaths are still in the future, as indeed are the stack of novels that Jessica is yet to write, because in the pilot, despite all those familiar usual beats being firmly established right from the get-go, albeit over twice the running time of the average episode, our Jessica starts off as a yet unpublished author, living in a small town and acting as a part-time English teacher. The now familiar story structure of an unpleasant character and several of their enemies being established only for someone not necessarily the unpleasant character, but more often than not it is, to be murdered in a mysterious way is all there as is the request of local law enforcement for Jessica to help out, sometimes because they've shamed, she shamed them into it, although the way she gets to corral all of the suspects for the denouement to cries of denouement in our house, at least we do that with Poirot too, is a bit of a bait-and-switch in the pilot, but, but, but we'll get to that later. As the montage and the credits continue, a green telephone is ringing as Jessica returns from her jogging. For a woman of a certain age, she's a pretty good runner, by the way. Something that's going to come in handy from time to time, so it's worth establishing from the get-go. It's an excitingly modern push-button version of the familiar dial telephone with the curly wire, which shows that Jessica is a forward-thinking modern woman who will use the very latest technology like a proper typewriter when it comes to writing her novels, and will therefore show that she is not befuddled by the strange modern world in which she lives, and that fax machines, pages, and dinky-dinky computers are not going to be available as the tools of to confuse her in the pursuit of truth. Because, like Poirot and Miss Marple and countless other sleuths before her, Jessica's moral compass is unwavering, and she is the instrument of truth and justice and fair play, and we need to remember such things when modern mystery writers try to mess with that basic fundamental facet of the genre. We cut. Two of you of New York City, in which the Twin Towers of the World Trade Center still stand tall on the skyline, and from where Jessica's nephew, Grady, is calling because, via his girlfriend Kitty, played by Jessica Brown, he's handed a book manuscript to a publisher who wishes to publish it, and, despite her protestations of not being happy that her private amusement is becoming public property and that she is not really a writer, suddenly we see a shop window in which this proud daughter of Cabot Cove's book moves up from number eight to number two in the bestsellers list. Word that such matters were so easy in the real world, eh, folks? Anyway, in order to bring Jessica to New York and allow the story proper to begin, we cut back to that office in the Twin Towers where there are further discussions about the necessity of distasteful things like publicity junkets. And so, accompanied by another jaunty tune, we see Jessica receiving a Cabot Cove makeover, one of which she is persuaded to travel to the Big Apple in a beret, apparently. 
and through the magic of film editing, she is brought to a railroad station in New York City where, having befriended the train guard en route, she is met from the train by Grady and Kitty and taken to the office for a very brief meeting with the owner of the publishing house, an apparently very terse man who is running very late and barely acknowledges Jessica's presence when he does finally show up. That fine character actor, Arthur Hill, who you might remember from the film This Andromeda Strain, plays Preston Giles, and whilst Jessica maintains that she's not in it for the whining and dining, she takes a moment to remark upon his sallow complexion and offers up some friendly advice as to how he could achieve a healthier one. We next see Jessica's face on a black and white TV monitor as we begin yet another montage, this about the trials, tribulations and frustrations of the terribly hard life of being a best-selling author on the publicity circuit. A talk show host is rude to her, a critic is dismissive, a person buying several copies at a book signing merely sees it as an investment, Jessica is ignored on a radio show because she's not exciting enough, stay tuned, a feminist talk show spoils the ending of, a book, of the book. Jessica catches a cold, and finally one of a group of overzealous autograph hunters turns out to be a Mrs. Peabody with a subpoena accusing her of plagiarism. I think somebody's writing from their own bitter experiences here, people. Fed up with the whole thing, Jessica, running gag alert, makes the first of several attempts to just go home. Although an unexpected and penitent Preston Giles comes to see her off, presumably because he's decided that he's rather taken with the cut of her jib, and with roses in hand, persuades her to stay and come to the country for a weekend party, the old flirty boots, and even offers to give her a lift. And so the location shifts yet again to the classic country house for the classic country house murder mystery to unfold. And we arrive in the quaint little town of New Holvang, where, at the side of a swimming pool, Caleb McCallum, played by Brian Keith, is shooting a rifle as an ironic foretaste of things to come. And, whilst Jessica is introduced to a veritable cornucopia of potential suspects, several of whom claim to have loved her book, there is some significant discussion about the sonic boom from a passing aircraft which, you know, might prove significant in some small way later on, and it becomes apparent that, horror of horrors, the party that evening is going to be a costume party. And, because writing is so central to the concept of this series, everyone is supposed to be going as their favourite literary character. Do not get me started on the horrors of fancy dress. Just dirt. And so, we cut to one of those rather typical Hollywood notions of what an opulent costume party might resemble. And Jessica makes an entrance down a grand staircase in a little number she's managed to throw together with a little help and is portraying Cinderella's godmother, which, I don't know, somehow feels exactly right. Then Jessica gets to endure the dubious fun of the average rich American costume party, including dealing with a flirty Giles, some bad jokes from Humpty Dumpty, and the dubious bar humbug Ebenezer Scroogings of a failed songwriter pianist. Brian Keith arrives dressed up as a robust Sherlock Holmes, remember that episode title folks, and we get to see Ashley, his jealous girlfriend, in full jealous woman in American melodrama mode played by Trisha O'Neill, all of which helps set up the list of suspects and perhaps potential victims too. Obviously Giles' flirtations are starting to pay off, however, as Jessica goes for a walk with him in the extensive gardens, where they spot a torch flashing from within a darkened upstairs room, and suddenly a mysterious figure dashes through the party, but after a fight in the dark, he is caught. Regular viewers of such shows will now appreciate three things. Firstly, it's far too early in the episode for his character to be our principal suspect. But secondly, it's far too late to introduce another set of suspects. And yet thirdly, we are asking ourselves just why this new character is being introduced just now. Well, he's Basil Exposition, of course. Here to provide another layer of motive, but to also prove that this mysterious interloper was not one of our current suspects up to no good while the party was in full swing. No, it's not that kind of party. The intruder was none other than private investigator Dexter Baxendale, played by Dennis Patrick, and we are meant to ask why he is there, as indeed do several characters, several of whom, for the women at least, for this is an 80s American TV series, remember, are wearing somewhat skimpy outfits, presumably because of that famous jiggle factor that so beset Charlie's Angels and Policewoman and just about every other family drama of the preceding decade. Anyway, 
Just in case you'd forgotten this was a detective drama, he points out that everyone is under investigation, opening up the pool of suspects, and then he is thrown out, after having clocked Giles and referred to his choice of costume as the Count of Monte Cristo. And so Jessica's quiet little weekend is turning out ho-ho to be less quiet than expected. And whilst we're exposed to more ex American ideas of what opulence looks like, Caleb McCallum, dressed as Sherlock Holmes, remember, has a very public spat with his drunken wife, Louise McCallum, and Francis, who was once space virgin Altera in Forbidden Planet. And because she refuses to let anyone drive her home, she drives off drunk, giving us another possible, but ultimately not, victim to ponder upon. Meanwhile, Sherlock's girlfriend Ashley makes a point of spilling her wine, which the ever-practical and resourceful Jessica offers to help her clean up, providing her with a most cast-iron alibi as Jessica drags her off upstairs. And... As the drunk pianist fades slowly and unexpectedly into the early morning, we time-lapse to the morning after the party, when the butler is busy tidying up the chaos and snoring guests sleep all around the room. Jessica, of course, is out jogging, showing off her healthy nature, after presumably not spending the entire night with nasty Ashley. On her run, she meets a returning and not too hungover wife of Sherlock, Louise, and goes looking for Caleb. So... We are now in full someone's going to find a body soon mode, but the scream when it comes is from a woman in a bathing suit, jiggle jiggle, who has come across a body in the swimming pool and a shotgun lying at the poolside. And so, inevitably, we cut to mundane real-world routine of ambulances, police officers and radio messages confirming that there is some doubt over the identity of the Sherlock Holmes found floating in the pool and Ned Beatty, see also Homicide Life on the Street, turns up playing Detective Chief Gunderson in a natty hat. In the grand old tradition of such things, he interviews suspects in the drawing room whilst amusingly Jessica is outside the window in the background looking for clues as a light musical sting, possibly on a clarinet, tootles away to take away from the death and horror. The chief suspect is the wife. You remember that very public row, of course, but she denies shooting anyone, even though she can't remember due to the blind drunkenness, which even she has to admit is a rather blank and convenient sort of an alibi. Meanwhile, the whining pianist wants to leave, which means we get to see more of Jessica checking stuff out until the chief realises that he's read her book. And simply because of this, a small town detective asks what she thinks is going on. Yes, as will become the norm, a small-town cop involves Jessica, and as we are all asking exactly why he would do this, she makes a very good point that the body is wearing the wrong shoes, and the detective puts two and two together, far after Jessica has done so. Are you saying that the body isn't Caleb McCallum? In walks Caleb McCallum, alive and well, to rather underscore the point. Well, he is Brian Keith. He'd always want more than the coffin a spit. Anyway. After that entrance, the reunion with his wife doesn't go too well, and it also turns out from the card that the private eye was carrying that he was working for Caleb. And we get a little more motive dropped in with chat about business troubles, confidential information going astray, missing reports, and who might be the spy. It appears that our late investigator friend might have been onto something, and Giles, in a frightening yellow sweater, asks the question everyone else is thinking about why he was in Caleb's Sherlock Holmes costume. And in front of a sea of bewildered faces of his friends, they were all at the same party, remember, he admits that he went off to a local inn with a young lady, which is US primetime code for rumpy pumpy, I suppose. Anyway, the costume was dumped and presumably put on by Dexter Baxendale for reasons unknown, and someone shot him thinking he was someone else, probably. Giles sets up a nice post-party departure limousine ride for Jessica, although she is distracted and has a thought of twelve, not least her sudden qualm about the reality of real-world murder rather than her own cosy murder mystery novels, which is again a moment telling the critics that the writers are aware of this and that they've now addressed it, thank you very much, and can we just get on with our cosy murder mystery, if you don't mind. At the gate, get Detective Gunderson intercepts her, and their subsequent chat in, in the limo fills in the story so far, for any of us not keeping up at home. Basically, someone killed Sherlock Holmes, and in case you've not yet twigged, supposing the killer didn't know about the switching costumes, the chief sadly laments that he now has two possible victims and is spending the worst Sunday he's had in ten years. Not a line you'd want in for Sunday evening transmissions, I'd imagine, but never mind. We cut 
to some newspapers being read by Kitty in Jessica's hotel room. She gets quite a lot of young women in her room, does Jessica, who suggests that she could solve the mystery. Jessica, however, is packing and about to take a second shot at running gag alert, heading home to teach. In a little bit of fairly typical American storytelling, we learn that she is rather fond of Giles, but objects to being fixed up with a suitor. Although, as she points out that they were beginning to hit it off, and that she needs to give the situation much thought, our internal alarm bells are ringing and we wouldn't take bets on Giles making it to the end credits. We cut to that familiar porter on the train home. But she doesn't leave with the train this time because her nephew Grady has been arrested on suspicion of theft and possibly murder. And we cut to Jessica busybodying at the police station and finding the evidence stacking up against him. Not least because that missing report was found in his car. Even Jessica seems unsure, although it is Jessica, so we know that he's prob she's probably got it all worked out already. Giles arrives, coming to the rescue, with offers of brilliant lawyers he can get to help, and this newly formed Scooby gang retire to a nearby coffee shop to chat about motives. In the same coffee shop, Jessica spots the evil Ashley, who is no longer a suspect because the time of death has been pinpointed at 11.15, and what they thought was a sonic boom was a gunshot, which happened as Jessica was sponging her down. For one of the main suspects, then, Jessica is her alibi. And that is where we reach the end of part one in the two-part version of the edit, which of what was once a feature-length double episode. So, whilst I do only look at part ones, I'm not going to leave you in the lurch. We shall simply move on to part two with a bit of a spoiler alert to warn you that I'm telling you the plot. In a taxi, Jessica worries about her burgeoning relationship with Giles, saying rather poetically that flowers that bloom too early fade too fast, although we swiftly move on to a chat with a rather pleasant taxi driver over the overheard bay something, which eventually leads to Bayside Marina, where she meets Caleb on his boat. Anyway, Je Caleb thinks Jessica's nephew is guilty, the fool, and Jessica decides to set a trap, which involves a telephone call back to her nephew, because they need to prove it was Ashley who stole the report, or at least her accomplice Sam. And so, in the tradition of those old Hitchcock suspense sequences, obviously, an influence here, Jessica takes it upon herself to investigate Ashley's office outside office hours, and so, with that familiar shot through a fish tank foreground, so beloved of TV directors, we see her through it, searching for the missing report. It's funny how business offices are also similar in these American series, but in many ways, business in America is a very uniform thing, as are the expectations and the ambitions involved with it. But we're not here to discuss wider American culture in general, although we ought to point out that cliches become cliches because of their essential truth and homogenous, recognisable elements. Anyway, Grady goes off to search inside the computer. Ah, those were the days computers were so mysterious. This has the advantage of leaving Jessica alone and allowing the soundtrack to crank up the suspense music as she searches. However, shock, horror, suspense. Ashley arrives, and whilst we see her removing evidence, Jessica hides behind the sort of handy wall no office I've ever worked in ever had, and on the brink of being discovered, phew, she is saved by a phone call, and as Ashley leaves suddenly, Jessica heads off in relatively hot pursuit, although no taxis will stop and Jessica is very nearly hit by a bus. Still pursuing her quarry, Jessica gets on the bus, a bus driven by Herb Edelman, no less. Big John, Little John. The episode takes a peculiarly urban turn. The camera favours the sinister book bus folk one of whom, a black actor of course, gets off the bus when it stops on the wrong side of the tracks and Jessica is immediately beset by a couple of hoodlums who threaten her and involve her in a street mugging as the real world intrudes into our cosy drama and suddenly it's urban and street and yes, no doubt far too real for its target audience. Oh, and one of those actory muggers is that future Hollywood star Andy Garcia that I mentioned earlier. However, in a rather nice turn, the sinister black guy saves her from the bad guys, despite all that threatening music and emphasis on his shifty looks on the bus, because he's read her book and recognised her as being a celebrity, which means that the scene ends <laughs> on a vandalised poster of Jessica sporting a moustache. Back at the current location of Jessica's murder, she wrote headquarters. Giles and nephew wait anxiously until Jessica arrives with a stack of newspapers and, via a mistake found on the rinky-dinky computer, Jessica makes a vital connection and phones the chief to tell him to arrest Ashley. And after trawling through the papers, she finds an advert, which takes us off for what we suppose to be the denouement. And so 
Wearing her best dotty spotty blouse, Jessica points out that washed-out piano player was more than a little bit dodgy and is producing an off-off-Broadway production at the Serendipity Theatre, so she heads over there for a little Jessica explanatory chat with him as her ne nephew waits outside. Inside the theatre, a very bad song audition is taking place. There's another long academic paper yet to be written collating such scenes. And with bellows of Marvin from the departing, struggling songstress accent on the stress, Jessica's voice is heard from the shadows as we return to another theatrical setting not unlike that opening so long ago which we'd all forgotten all about, really. But, you know, writers like such dramatic resonances, so here we are. Anyway, the J in Jacques obviously stands for Jessica, and she explains the Ashley connection using excellent expressions like fiddle-faddle and shenanigans, and when Ashley surfaces up in the gods and makes her admission of fraud and theft in cahoots with a pianist pal, it looks as if the jig is firmly up. However, she has a cast-iron alibi. Which brings us to the bat bait and switch we talked about earlier, because in, uh, in the break, with the familiar format of these sorts of things, after the confrontation with some villains, the plot now moves on. The detective searches Caleb's boat and is arrested by some passing cops. It seems that everyone's got the same message that something interesting should be able to be found at the boat, and when the sail is unrolled, it turns out that Caleb, i.e. Sherlock Holmes, is now properly dead. Back at Jessica HQ, various bits of chat in the hotel room confirms those pesky alibis as Jessica, who is always leaving, packs her back again, which Giles laments, which leads to a rather moving moment, which ends with our Jessica actually getting a snog and a fade-out. So we find ourselves back once again at the railways, railroad station with Jessica leaving all over again, rather sad that she didn't solve the mystery, and in another round of chat with the porter, ho-ho, he asks once more whether she's sure she's leaving, and she confirms this, settling down to read her paper, and of course she finds a clue and gets off the train and runs like the wind, because all of that jogging really pays off, you see. And so we arrive at the day new morn proper, as we see Jessica returning to New Holvang whilst engaging with another taxi driver. They are proving to be a philosophical lot because Jess knows and chats to absolutely everyone she meets. So here we are at that murder mystery staple, the empty old house, and when Giles finds out, he flies out because he's so worried about her. Meanwhile, Jessica is hunting around for clues with her torch, and having found one, ends up outside a locked door, where she is approached by the villain of the piece, who is none other than... Spoiler alert. Giles! The swine! Anyway, at the poolside, on a dramatically dark and windy night, because that always works best, she admits to wanting to tie up a loose end, and as the time approaches almost eight o'clock, and even at twenty-five feet, Jessica can see Giles quite clearly, because the automatic lights come on at eight, even when there is no moon, so the mistaken identity shooting doesn't hold any pool water. And whilst Jessica hoped that she was wrong, she now knows exactly what happened, and is rather sorry to have to give her, you did it, now I understand lots of things click speech to this bloke whom she thought she rather liked. With Jessica visibly upset, it's left to the villain to do what they always have to do in such dramas and confess his backstory, explaining all about the 15 years spent rebuilding a life after his escape from prison and being recognised by the private eye. And whilst several allusions are made to the Count of Monte Cristo, Jessica is now getting angry, not knowing whether to scream or cry, and is visibly very upset, especially at, as the threatening music cranks up and Giles places a threatening hand on her shoulder at the edge of the swimming pool of death before he decides to hand himself in and there was no real threat at all phew false jeopardy eh? it's exhausting and for one last time we return to the railroad station with jessica insisting that she is never coming back after having endured such a miserable week and musing upon how differently things might have turned out if only she'd let it be which isn't very jessica is it boys and girls and wouldn't have made for much of a series if she had however as she boards the train there's time for one last Jessica wait and another request for help as two wrestlers have been found drowned in a wrestling ring in the middle of the city and as Jessica dismisses her until she thinks about it and then incredulously repeats the one word drowned we freeze frame safe in the knowledge that hundreds more mysteries are waiting to be solved. By the time of the series proper, Jessica would be an established best-selling author with several books, other books behind her, but as an introduction to a proper, cosy murder mystery series, The Murder of Sherlock Holmes makes a rather enjoyable tale, and Jessica's adventures are off 
to a cracking start. Thank you very much to Martin. Yes, thank you, Martin. Yet again, another interesting article. Yes, indeed. Uh, you quite like Murder, She Wrote. I, don't, I don't mind Murder, She Wrote. I quite often, because they've actually taken it off, but ITV3 were showing it um, at 7 o'clock hmm. every weekday. And quite often, when I do my ironing, I'll just stick it on, because you yeah. can just have it on in the background, but then I have to wait to see who the murderer is. <laughs> Because it's never the person you think it's going to be. Yeah. It's always, you know, somebody who's in the background or something. But uh, yeah. yeah, not Richard Bryce. Not though. Richard Bryce. Well, he's he's not really in Murder She Wrote much. No. No. Is he in it at all? No. Oh, right. well, probably no. not him then, is no. it? Um, <laughs> but now, um, yeah, Martin's also been doing some lovely artwork he has. for us. Yes, um, he has. He themed has. around what we're going to do next, because. Mm-hmm. Uh, you and I mm-hmm. will now take a look at the Star Trek episode, Wolf in the Fold. Yes, indeed. Space, the final frontier. These are the voyages of the starship Enterprise. It's five-year mission to explore strange new worlds to seek out new life and new civilizations. To boldly go where no man has gone before. Right then, Lisa. Yes. Star Trek Wolf in the Fold. Yes. From season two, mm-hmm. episode 14. Mm-hmm. Uh, production code 36, apparently. Okay. Uh, original air date 22nd of December 1967. Okay. Not a very Christmassy episode. Not really, when, no. When you think about no. that. No. But written by Robert Block... I presume that's how you pronounce I, it. I it's B L O C H. It might yes. be Blotch, but I'm going to say Blotch. It might be Blotch. And directed by mm. Joseph Pevney. Yes. Right. So, mm. do you want to quickly explain Star Trek? Do we need to explain Star Trek? Okay. I don't know. For anybody out there who's never seen Star Trek, and if you've not seen Star Trek, why haven't you seen Star Trek? Because it's just on everywhere. Star Trek is a series about um, uh, a, a, a spaceship and its crew and their adventures. And, mm-hmm. and this. Um, particular incarnation which is the first incarnation it's just the Starship Enterprise well it's always the Starship Enterprise mostly there are other ships except when it's not except when it's not because how many series have you Uh, seen I've lost count have I seen I have seen some original Star Trek most of the Star Trek The Next Generation yeah Uh, most a a lot of Star Trek Deep Space Nine which was set on a space station Mm. And bits and pieces of Star Trek Voyager, which yeah. is on a spaceship in a different universe. Yeah. I've not seen any um, Enterprise, no. and I've not seen any Star Trek Discovery, which is the latest right. version. But I should watch some because it's got Jason Isaacs in. <laughs> so you know. Okay. But yes, um, you said you've seen some original yes. Star Trek, but. Would you say that Next Generation is the one you know best? Next and, Generation and is Space Nine. Yes, yeah. 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 I. I I find that the original series of Star Trek quite hard to watch mm. in some ways. Now, to me, you see, um, this is proper Star yeah. Trek. No, yeah, I can appreciate that. I think it's the one you see the first, and I think I probably saw Next Generation first. Because we were looking through the schedules, and yeah. once upon a time, Star Trek was a real core part yeah, of the BBC One schedule yeah. in the evenings, because mm-hmm. you know, we found that line-up from 1978, and it's on, yeah. you know, slap-bang, 
in the middle on mm-hmm. BBC One. Later on, it gets demoted to BBC Two yes. in the six o'clock slot, mm-hmm. which is where they showed Next Generation. Yeah. And uh, it, I always think it would have been interesting what figures they would have got had they put it on BBC One. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I don't know. It was that thing, though, uh, of pushing sort of science fiction to more of a niche thing. Yes. Whereas yes. very much in, in the sort of 70s and sort of early 80s, mm-hmm. Star Trek was on BBC One and yeah. there was no questions no, asked, no. you know. Um, <laughs> so I've probably seen this one a few times mm-hmm. and I, I I do remember yeah. it because we've got it on Blu-ray now, we have. haven't you? And you yes. can have it with enhanced effects and things. And original effects. But we went yes. for original. Yes, because yes. we're purists. Yes, because yes. this is how we first saw it. But... Mm. Um, this opens with the pre-credit sequence mm-hmm. and on the original BBC One showings that I would have seen mm-hmm. it would have started with the theme music okay so yeah so this isn't quite how I perhaps right. saw it the first time but anyway we, we open mm-hmm. with a dancing lady a dancing lady yes she's um, sort of doing belly dancing yeah. <laughs> space belly dancing space belly dancing yeah. and I was just reading because I was just having a look at the trivia on IMDB and mm. she's got a little jeweled thing over her belly button because mm. they were afraid of censorship Right. I really can't believe anybody would censor a belly button. Everybody's got a belly button. There are some weird censor things that affected original Star Trek, mm-hmm. and costume design is one of them. Yeah, it's worth reading some of the okay. some of the notes and things mm-hmm. in the making of Star Trek about right. what you could and what you couldn't get away with. It was really quite strange. Yes. Yeah. Yes. But yes, um, but yeah, she's got little finger symbols little on. Little finger and, symbols, and she, yes. Yeah, she's sort of twiddling. Them. I don't know why I'm doing actions. You can't yeah. see me. And she's, <laughs> as, I, as I put, she's gyrating her chests. She is gyrating her chests, yes. And then later on, she she gyrates other bits in yeah. people's faces. But what what's the sort of cosy here? It's all sort of it's, a... It's, it's, it is a sort of belly dancer's kind mm. of... It's very skimpy, but it's yeah. the 60s. All of the co- female costumes are very skimpy. Yeah, we'll get on to that. Yeah. yeah. Um... Yeah, it's. I mean, she hasn't got like trousers or anything. Yeah, it's, it's sort of sort of belly dancer ish, <laughs> but short. Yes, uh, but then the sort of camera pulls back, mm. and um, who is it? It's Captain Kirk, yeah. Doctor McCoy, and, and Mister Scott. Mister Scott. Um, what rank is Mister Scott? Because uh, I was just calling Mister. He's chief. Well, he's chief engineer. I'm, yeah. I'm not entirely sure. Okay. I'm sure somebody would know, but. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you if you want, I can, yeah. I, I can look. I'm just curious because the 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 t- use of the title Mister indicates that he's got a sort of a highish rank, but uh, yeah, so that's so. It. Mm, yeah, the trouble with these, uh, hmm. he's Lieutenant Commander apparently. Okay. Yeah. Or Lieutenant, Lieutenant Commander, Commander, if you yes. uh, if you insist. Well, yes, it's, the, I, it's the American way of saying it. I lieutenants. am going to get this wrong. Yes. So yes, I, I I'm yeah. sorry about that, but yes. Um, but yeah, one thing you notice about the set when mm. it pulls back is colour, isn't it? Yeah, there's a lot of colour, and it's an extraordinary thing that each of the main regulars has got a different coloured shirt on. Yeah, because um, Kirk's in sort of green, isn't he? Yeah, he's, he's got his sort of going he's, he's outside, going outside top on. Yeah, um, <laughs> Scotty's in red, and yeah. McCoy's in blue. Yeah. And then you've got all these sort of reds and purples, and, and it's very colourful. Yeah. Yes. And lighting as and well. And lighting. They've yeah. thrown every colour in they can possibly manage. Yeah. But, um, what was it? Scott is very happy. This mm-hmm. is described as a completely hedonistic society. Yes. Or hedonistic. Hedonistic, yes. And um, he says that Captain Kirk's always thinking of his men taking yes. him to a place like that. I'm not yes. sure that's what Captain Kirk's no. thinking of. Um. But the lady sort of um, finishes her dance. She and does. She, she comes over and yes. sits with Scotty. Yeah, because um, Kirk's invited her to come and... Yeah. He says the table. There isn't a table, really, is no, there? They're, they're all sitting on cushions on the floor. Yeah, they're not Which would up. be fine for a little while, but you'd get do you, stiff. Do you, do your legs in yeah. after a while. Yeah, I, I notice that nobody gets up and goes, ooh, ah, ooh, no. I've got pins and needles, <laughs> yes, which is how I'd have written it. Yes. Yeah. Um, but... But yeah, to, to, you don't applaud these ladies. You f- no, you flash at you them. You flash at them. That sounds really rude. And every like? every man in the room is flashing at the yes. ladies, isn't aren't yes. they? Apart, got... apart from Scott, who, who 
And he doesn't even clap properly. He does. He sort of bangs his hand on the table, doesn't he, or whatever, or something. I like the way he describes himself as an Aberdeen pub crawler. Yes. Yeah, I can imagine that. Yes. But he likes his whiskey. <laughs> but yeah, they've got these lights with buttons that you mm. show your appreciation with. Um, and he says it's a fine foggy night, mm-hmm. and he's thinking about Aberdeen fog. Yes. And when they go outside, the Aberdeen fog, I hope, doesn't look like that because it's all on the ground. Yes. Because it, it's clearly the smoke machine yes. that they've got out, yep. isn't it, aren't they? Mm-hmm. But, um, but, yeah, they go for a walk. What is it? A walk in the fog with a bonnie lass. Mm-hmm. Now, um, why is Scotty been prescribed this? Um I'm assuming this this is to do with something that's happened in an earlier episode. Well, you, you don't see it actually. Oh, right, okay. No. So it's just he's he's something's exploded and it's threw him against a bulkhead and he's hit his head. So he's and had it's a, a woman's fault. And it's a woman's fault. It's always a woman's fault. <laughs> I love the way that mm-hmm. yeah, but apparently in this society, mm-hmm. if an, a woman explode causes an explosion, yes. uh, you might harbour some hatred some of resentment. her. Yes. I don't know where the psychology of that's yeah. coming from. That's just to give him a motive yeah. into what happens later. Hmm. But yeah, and uh, there's the first of lines about like, I know a place where the women dot, dot, yes. dot. Yes, yeah, you're like... <sighs> yeah. Okay, but yeah, the fog machine's out, and then mm-hmm. so off they go, and then yeah. there's a scream, there's a isn't it? Scream, there? which apparently is used from the cage. Is it? Uh, this is again according to the trivia on IMDb. Right, okay. It could be wrong. All right, I didn't notice, but mm. yeah, and they find um, she's dead. She's dead, Jim. She's dead, Jim. Yeah, he gets McCoy to say says. that. He says that a couple of times. She's yeah. dead, Jim. She's mm. been stabbed multiple Several times. Yeah. yeah, and Scotty's up against the wall. Yes. Um, Reeling in horror. Looking a bit stunned with with a knife in his his hand. Cue the titles. Yes. Finally. Mm. So, yes. Did we say what the planet was? Possibly not. No, it's the planet Argelius 2. There's Mm -hmm. a few um, planet names here that you've got to keep track of. Yeah. But, yes, they're on Argelius 2. And in comes Mr. Hengist, the city administrator. Yes. Who's come from Rigel 4. Rigel 4. Now, um. I got, Rigel's a real place. I'm not. I'm trying to think if Argelius is a real place or not. I, I, now I want to look up the <laughs> the, the astronomy of yes. this, but I haven't got the time. Yeah, so he's not a native, and I've, I sort of vaguely recognised him. Mm. Um, he's, I think, in the monsters as the mailman, but okay. it's his voice. Yeah. That and. It took me a while to, to work it out, but he's the voice of Piglet yeah, in the Disney Winnie the Pooh cartoons. He's, he's Piglet. Yeah. This, this character is so unlike Piglet. Yeah, I know. But, um, but yeah, they, they, they're sort of talking about the knife, and um, Scotty can't remember anything. No. Anything no. That, that, that's, that's happened. That's happened. Yeah. Um, but under sort of, Arge- they want it done under Argelian jurisdiction. Yes. Yeah. It's this thing of the Federation must see not to be interfering yeah. and not imposing justice so they do it under the justice of the planet they're on yeah um but yes um enter the prefect of the planet jarris and his wife and his missus Cybo, mm. is it Cybo, yeah Cybo. um and apparently she's very good at empathic contact mm-hmm. whatever that may be <laughs> um but well, that's, isn't diana troy an empath Oh, possibly, yeah. Yeah, it's it's sort of like a telepath, but with feelings, isn't it? Yeah, something. Yeah, like that. you can feel feelings. So yeah, they they um they suggest that she d- tries this to try and work out yeah sort of what's, what's been happened. going on. So they go to the prefect's house. Yeah, and apparently she's a descendant of the old priestesses yes. or something. Yeah. yeah. Um, Kirk wants to get a psycho tricorder down, yes. doesn't he? So he asks him because she's got to meditate before she can do the yeah. sort of seance thing yeah mr hengis isn't keen on the no. on the psycho tricorder and mm. they don't really want to go back up to the ship no if they can help it um so they are somebody to beam down yeah but cut to the ship briefly and spock's mm. in the driving he seat is. Isn't he's, he? he's in the captain's chair yeah mm. Keep, keeping it warm keeping for him keeping it warm for, for <laughs> captain kirk but yeah, there's talk of closing Argelius to space vessels. Yes, which would cause problems. Because it's an important spaceport and the only one in the quadrant. Yes. Well, that's a bit not very forward thinking. No, is it's it? not, is it? They should really get a spaceport somewhere else just yeah. in case. But um, 
Karen Tracy beams down. Mm-hmm. Um, and what what was it you described her, Cosy? It barely covers her bottom. Yes, I didn't say bottom. You said arse. I did say arse. I was being polite. <laughs> no, we're not polite. Here. Okay. Yes, it's... Yeah, it's, it's literally... It must just sort of finish at the bottom of a bottom. <laughs> the bottom think, of a bottom. Yeah. <laughs> I think if you bend over, you'd give somebody a good view. Yeah. That's probably where they wear... Because most... All, all of the, the female characters in this version of Star Trek have quite dark tights on. All right. And I think that's the reason to stop you being able to see their knickers when they bend over. Okay. Yeah, thank you for that. Yeah. Right. Um, the knife apparently has disappeared. Yes. Not the fact nobody's keeping an eye no, on it. No, no, no. It's like, well, you know, it's only sort of hanging weapon. around. Yeah. Yeah. Don't worry about it. And there's it. a scream, mm-hmm. and she's dead, Jim. Yes. And she's been stabbed. Yes, and and Scotty's the only one in the room. And he's he's passed out again. Yes. Yeah. So it's all looking a bit bad for him. It is looking a bit bad for Scotty. Yes. So they give him some Argelian stimulant. Yes. In a glass. Mm-hmm. And he still can't remember anything. No. No. So, uh, yes. Um, then in comes Mister Hengis with two men. Mm-hmm. Um, one of whom's got the squarest head I've ever seen. <laughs> the squarest head. Yeah, he's got a really square face. Yeah. He's got a sort of yeah, he's yeah. It's just quite okay. odd. All right, so yeah. it's her dad. A dad, yeah. Who was a musician in mm-hmm. the, thing, the cafe, and um, her would have been husband. Yes, her fiance. Yeah, mm. but apparently he was jealous of her yes. jiggling about. Yes. And jealousy is frowned upon on this planet yeah. because it is it's uh, a destructive emotion. Yeah, um, so he left. Yes. Um, before he left the first he murder got, He got humpy because she was being nice to Scotty. Yeah, okay. The room is sealed, mm-hmm. um, finally. And mm-hmm. um, Spock comments that this technique of sort of empathic what's it is interesting but not very sound. Yes, flawed. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and he'd rather that the investigation took place on board on the, the Enterprise. Yeah. Enterprise using computers and things. When they're doing all this sort of ritual, it's a very nice high angle isn't mm. there um, you can see the sort of design on, on the floor yeah. which is quite nice and um, she says there's something here something terrible fear anger hatred um, and hatred of women um, so hatred of life hatred, but, and yeah. hatred of women yeah but um, the lights suddenly go out they do and there's a scream and there's a scream mm. and She's dead. Yes. Isn't and guess who's 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 holding her and who's got blood on his hands. And she got a knife in her back. Yeah. Yeah. It's Scotty. Yeah. Mm. You know, to, to you know, one one may be considered a misfortune, two looks like carelessness, three, well I can don't even know what to say, but yes. yeah. Um apparently the if he's found guilty, it'll be death by slow torture. Yes. Which sounds fun. It does. Um but they they go back to the Enterprise, finally. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Kirk, Kirk and, and McCoy convince them that they can uh, do a... Um, have a sort of trial on the Enterprise, but they've got... Uh, the computer can detect truth and lies and everything. So yeah. they all go up to the Enterprise. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, so they've got the truth detector chair, haven't yes, they? Yes, truth detector chair. This is a chair with a little thing with that you put your hand it, on. Yeah. yeah. And uh, you said there was something about Scotty's hand to yes, watch out for in yes. this. Again, sequence. this is this is from the trivia, so it's yeah. not something I spotted myself. But apparently, James Doohan was missing a finger. Mm. He'd lost a finger in the D-Day landings. Right. Now, why you can't have a crew member with four fingers? Yeah. I don't know. I don't see what the problem is. But apparently, he normally he hides it. Right. And at the one point, when he's got his hand on the the two lie detector thing. It's sort of curled around it, so yeah, you can't see yeah. it. But there's a shot later on where you need to see his hand properly, and it's a stunt hand, yeah. and it's in the wrong position. So it's quite obvious it's a oh, stunt right, hand, yeah. isn't yeah. it? So fair enough. So, but yeah, I don't get why that's just—it's just a weird thing. Yeah, he's missing a finger. I suppose he has to be seen to be perfect because he's a leading man, isn't it? And it's that. But he's of... not the leading man. No, and even but... if he was a, the leading man, what does it matter if he's only got four fingers? It's mm. ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Oh, there you go. Uh, but he says that when he was, when she, when the last one was stabbed in the back, mm-hmm. he said he went over, he went over to her, and there was something in his way, yes, something cold that wasn't yeah. really there. Mm-hmm. So that that's a bit yes. unexpected, it isn't is. it? Yes. 
But I quite like this sort of um, dete- lie detector system because mm-hmm. the computer is sort of monitoring for physiological changes. Yeah. I don't know how reliable that really is in real life. Mm-hmm. I, I've, you, it's the sort of thing you sort of hear about, but I've never really sort yeah. of read up on it to see whether it's... Like, it's something to do with... I it's think heartbeat it's, yeah, it's heart sort of sweat it's things, if you If it? you tell a lie, your heartbeat, heart rate increases or something, unless yeah. you're a really, really good liar. Yeah. But Mr. Hengis isn't happy with all no. of this. Um, He's not. But the verifier, um, you know, Scotty isn't telling any lies when he no. says... You know, he can't remember stuff yeah. and, and what have you. His dad says that... It, um, Her dad. Sorry, his dad. Uh, <laughs> yeah, the dancer's dad says that he didn't love... Uh, she didn't love. She didn't love. <laughs> well, he probably didn't love him either. <laughs> but she didn't love her husband-to-be. No. And they fought. Yes. Because uh, he was jealous. But um, we, we've had these words said by um, the, the empathic lady. Cybo. Yeah. And one of the words was re- regic, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. Or regic, yeah. Um, red, red, redjack, R-E-D-J-A-C, apparently. I, I heard it as regic, like, mm-hmm. like a R-E-J-I-K, but that's mm-hmm. just my hearing. I mean, this turns out to be um, a word referring to Jack the Ripper. Yes, red jack. Yeah. Mm. Have you ever heard of that before? No. No, okay. Spring Hill Jack, you've Spring heard Spring Jack, yeah. Well, that's not really to do with Jack. With no. Ripper, but, yeah. but um, I love the line, but he lived hundreds of years ago. Yes. Yes, but it's what is it, a hunger that never dies. Um, mm-hmm. So there's a lot of sort of speculation yes. back and forth at yeah. this point. Yeah. Um, could some sort of life form exist? Mm-hmm. Um not as a human that mm. could like feed on fear. Yeah. Um, would it be some sort of energy creature or something mm-hmm. like that? And yeah, it, it all goes off into the you know, a bit of the realms of fantasy. And yes. Again, Mister H- Hengis is saying, "Oh, this is all fairy tales." Yes, you're just trying to get your friend off and all this sort of yeah. thing. Yes. But um, yeah, then they sort of um, try and plot, mm. sort of mass murders of women don't yeah. they yeah. Uh, well they're looking at these words aren't they they're looking at all these different words yeah yeah um and there's like 1932 shanghai and 1974 kiev and then 2105 mars mm. and uh 2156 and all these if you pl- join them all up apparently yes. it's a straight line between here and uh, between earth and argelius isn't yes. it yeah yeah. And apparently one year ago there were some mass murders on Rigel 4. Rigel 4, yes. Now who do we know who's come from Rigel 4? Mm. It's Mr. Hengis. It is. Ooh. And they say to him, you know, would you... You, you come from Rigel 4. Yeah. And he goes, well, so do lots of people. It's not a crime, which yeah. made me laugh. Yeah. And uh, he, they say to him, would you, you know, would you sit in the uh, in the chair, in the, in the lie detecting chair? chair and yeah. he says no. And there's a bit of a crowbar here mm. to get the wolf in the fold title in, yeah. isn't there? Because uh, Spock says about how, how the people there are, are sort of quite docile like sheep. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, he, he would be like the wolf. In the fold. And I just thought mm-hmm. of it's the wolf at that it's point with Lamsey. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, analysis of the knife says it was uh, comes from Rigel 4 as well. Mm-hmm. So it's suddenly all suspicions off of Scott in on yep, Mr. Hengis. On Mr. Hengis. They? Who's the most inoffensive-looking little man you've ever seen? And he's Piglet. And he's Piglet. Oh. <laughs> Piglet can't be Jack the Ripper. <laughs> well, Piglet's not Jack the Ripper. No. no. Um, but then he has a fight scene because he, he sort of legs it, he doesn't does. he? Yeah, but I don't. I don't see. I love the way he, he goes all, all the way round the table. Yeah. He should have gone the other way to yeah. get out quick. And where's he going to go? Yeah. He's on a ship yeah. in space. But he does a real good kick at. He does Kirk, a good kick he? at Kirk. Yes. And yeah. Kirk, Kirk hits him. He gives him a punch. Yeah. yeah. And knocks him out, and, he, yeah. and he's he, dead, Jim. Yeah, he's getting to say that a lot this time, isn't he, <laughs> You really should take a drink every yeah. time he says, dead, Jim. Yeah. Got him, uh, And suddenly you get all these weird voices from the yes. computer and, like, weird images yes. on and, the screen. And the entity has gone into the computer. Yeah. Mm. So, you know, we're in a bit of a desperate situation yes, here. Yes, because so. it can control the, the ship now. It can crash the ship or it can turn the oxygen off or whatever. Yeah. So Kirk, you know, presses a button and does mm. a, a ship-wide announcement. Yes. And Kirk's invaluable advice is, 
Remain calm. Yeah, stay at your posts and remain calm. So McCoy gets the sedatives out now. Yes, gets the tranquilizers out. So he starts... Um, because he's... what they want to do, because the entity feeds off fear, oh, right. and it will use various different things on the ship to heighten the fear, yeah. they want to tranqu- tranquilise everybody so that it will take longer for them to be fearful. Yes, that's true. But yeah, the lift... When they go in the lift. They go in the lift, Kirk yeah. and um, Spock. Spock. And the lift goes out of control it briefly. Does. But they thankfully, have, they've got some manual They've got control. a manual override. But mm. I, I like the thing in these lifts that you see the lights go up and down and mm-hmm. they go sideways yes. as well. That's mm. uh, It was always a nice thing that mm-hmm. the lift can go sideways. Um, it gets in the life support system yes. for a bit. Yeah. Um, so they sort of over, to, override yeah, that. They take override. a panel on and sort yeah. of wiggle some wires. Wiggle some wires, yes. But yeah, everybody on on the on on the sort of bridge gets gets tranquilized. Yes. Yeah. Sulu's very happy. Isn't he is he? very happy. Yes, he's yes. he's grinning away. Yes. Um, but yeah, um, <laughs> what is it? Sulu says he sure talks gloomy. Mm. Yes. Um, Spock then sort of thinks of a way to. Well, no, Kirk suggests it, doesn't he? Yeah, he needs to. Give it, give the computer, give the computer something, something to, to focus on to push the entity out. Yeah. Um, so Spock asks it to calculate pi. Yes. Which um, I love the way it ties up the computer hmm. more and more. Um, you know, it's infinite apparently. Yeah, you cannot stop yeah. calculating pi. Um, but you know, with sort of a computer these days, it could mm. do that in the background and not like yeah. it could do other things yeah. as well. Yeah. But I love the way that this this computer can only do that. Perhaps they've only got like sixteen um, k memory or something. Well, yeah, they've got like sort of Windows three point one or <laughs> yeah. something on it still. You know, they should have upgraded, but yeah. you know, they had problems probably. Uh, so basically, it, you know, most of the crew is is basically. Very merry now, yeah, aren't they? Stoned. Yeah, that's mm. the word. Um, so the the entity flees out of the computer. Yes. Now they've got to find out where it is. Yeah. yeah. But first of all, it goes into into Mister Jarris very briefly, yes. doesn't it? Yeah, because because they get back to the room where the people where they were, and they tell McCoy to inject himself. Yeah. And you can sort of tell it's in Jarris because of the way he's standing. Well, he's, he's stood. He's he very stood away. rigid. Yeah. Yeah. It's in him, and um, he he tries to attack. McCoy mm. and Spock does his famous Vulcan neck pinch, pinch neck. thing on him and knocks him unconscious. So the entity goes back into Mr. Hengist. Despite being dead. Despite being apparently dead. Yeah. Mm. Um, but they, he, he's sort of lying on his back giggling yeah. a bit, isn't he? Yeah. You will all die. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like yeah. that. And basically. Kirk picks him, picks him up, and slings him over his shoulder. And you said, did they choose a small actor yeah, so, so he, he could, could do, do that? that yeah, didn't hurt Shatner's back. No. Yeah. And they take him to the transporter room, and he's not struggling or anything. No, though, really is he? he's quite just, limp. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe it's been a bit of a sort of effort. Yeah. And they put him on the transporter pad and tell the transporter man, man, person, whatever you would call him, to to transport him into space. Obviously, he's been tranquilised and he's a bit slow. So Spock, who's, Spock ends up doing who's it. still sober, pushes yeah. him out of the way. Yeah. As he says later, there's no need to push, Mister Spock. Well, I would have gotten yeah. around to it. Yeah. yeah, but yeah, he's dispersed into space. Yes, in lots of little bits. Yeah, or, but he probably won't be dead or something. No, because yeah. not not yet anyway. Yeah. Mm. Uh, and so it's over, and the only people left sober are Kirk and Spock. Yes. So uh, Scotty and Bones come in, they're very happy, mm-hmm. and it all lasts for about five or six hours. Yes. So they're going to have the happiest crew in space. Yes. Um, and again, um, Kirk says, I know a cafe where the women are so yes. dot, dot, dot. Yeah. Uh, Spock's not bothered. Mm-hmm. Um, Kirk, amazingly, doesn't actually beam down to the... No, I thought no. he'd be straight down no, there he's, like he's... a ferret up a rattle. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, he decides against it because no. he'd be going on his own, and maybe it's more fun if you take a friend. I don't and know. you get a ha 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 yeah. scene like yeah. you Always sometimes get, do, yeah. and then mm. that's the end of the episode. It is, mm. but I quite enjoyed it. It's yeah, all right. It's, it's okay. I mean, I know you you said to me that you know that you wanted me to watch it and be critical, but you can't watch it with twenty first century eyes. No, 
because it was made in the 1960s. It's a very 1960s episode yeah. because there is a line in there about um, the reason that the entity f- mostly kills women is because women feel more terror. Yeah. And you're like, okay, what? <laughs> uh, this is from Mr. Spark. And you're like, yeah, no, what? Well, it, it's it's yeah. not that so much. It's the whole psychology of like Spot being uh, Scotty being resentful of women. Oh, that too, yeah. Yeah, yeah that, is that, that a bang that's on the head? I couldn't quite get my yeah. head round. But. but no, it's just this thing that it's the it's the sixties thing that because women are so called so supposedly the weaker sex mm. that they will feel more terror and um, fear. That's the same thing, but never mind. Um, <laughs> So, you know, <coughs> anybody that was about to be murdered, I would imagine, would feel fear, mm. whether being male or female. I so. wouldn't be happy about it. No. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but there you go. There's a mm. Star Trek Wolf in the Fold. Yes, and, I mean, and we must say, because it was, we, as you said, we do have the Blu-ray and it did look very nice. Oh, yes, yeah. You know, yeah, it's, it scrubs up very well. It scrubs well. up very well. It's, I just have problems with original series Star Trek yeah. I like the films though I've seen I mean particularly the fourth film The um, the Voyage Home I've seen that quite a lot Admiral there be whales yes yeah. <laughs> so but uh, yeah it's it's quite fun yeah okay mm. and uh, that pretty much is it for this yes issue this short issue short episode yes um, but there'll be another one along in a, li- a short while yeah, so thank you for listening we yes. will come back with more American stuff next time very soon mm-hmm. in the meantime we'll say thank you and see you all again okay bye 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 <laughs> was episode 28 of Round the Archives. Starring Lisa Parker, Andrew Trowbridge and Martin Holmes. On the musical side you heard Dan Tate and Paul Chandler. The script for Star Trek Wolf in the Fold was by Robert Block. And the producer was Gene L. Coon.